Hello friends, welcome to the Hillside Church Podcast. My name is Brad and I serve Hillside Church as the lead pastor. We're so glad to be able to share God's word with you in this way. God has so much in store for you and for your life. And one of the ways God works in our lives is through the study of his word, like the message you're about to hear. Our prayer for you is that as you share in this message, if it's me preaching or if it's someone else, is that God's word would minister to your heart and life in a most powerful way. Thanks again for being part of our church family. God bless you. This week, um, we're going to begin our time in Esther chapter 5. If you'd like to, to follow along, you can turn there. Um, I say begin our time in Esther 5 because we're actually going to be looking at a number of, or through the next three chapters, actually, in the book of Esther. We've been moving through the story of Esther a little bit on the slower side. Is where This will be week... This will be week five of our six-week series on Esther. So we've got halfway through the book in the first two-thirds of the sermon series. So we got to kind of move through the last half of the book a little, little bit of a quicker pace. But that's okay because today we're going to look at Esther chapter 5, 6, and 7 as they all kind of tell one story. And so we're going to be looking at that. Last week as we were looking at the story of Esther, we kind of came to like the climactic moment, the climax of this story, the most pivotal point that we've had so far is as Esther approaches the king in an attempt to save her people. See, in a way of recap, Esther was a Jewish girl who had been chosen to become queen of the largest empire in the world the Persian Empire. She was this Jewish girl who had been chosen out of all the girls in the kingdom to become queen. Esther had been chosen queen, but she had kept her nationality and her heritage a secret from the king under the advice of her cousin Mordecai. Now, Mordecai was her cousin who also lived in the capital of the empire, and, and he was a Jew, they were related, but he had kept his heritage a secret. And he believed that keeping his heritage a secret was part of the way that he had been able to, to be successful in the capital of this, this foreign empire. And so he kept quiet who he was and, and where he came from. And as his sister, as his cousin became queen, he told her, you need to do this too. If you want to be successful, if you want to be safe, you need to keep it a secret. And so Esther had kept it a secret. But there's this moment where Esther's cousin Mordecai runs into an issue with the king's right-hand man, a man named Haman. And, and Haman perceives this disrespect from Mordecai. And rather than, than, than just respond to Mordecai, we see that, that, that Haman takes it to a gigantic level. And, and instead of just caring about the man, he, he's able to find out that Mordecai is a Jew. And so he comes up with this plan to not just avenge Mordecai, but to kill all of Mordecai's people. That, that, that all of the Jews are going to be killed. And he's able to convince the king, and the king actually signs off on this plan. And last week, we saw that Mordecai comes to the realization, I've got to do something to, to save my life and to save the life of my people. And, and so, through what we discovered last week, was a, a very busy and I'm sure very exhausted messenger. Mordecai convicts, convinces his cousin Esther, the queen, to help. And so we have this moment where Esther comes before the king unannounced which in and of itself, just coming before the king unannounced is a crime worthy of death. That one of the laws of the kingdom was, no matter who you were, even if you're the queen, you don't come before the king unless you've been invited, unless he knows you're coming. That is unless the king makes an exception that you've committed a crime worthy of death unless the king makes an allowance for you to be there. And how he would do that is he would extend his scepter to you and then you would come forward and you would touch the end of his scepter. And then you just simply weren't killed in that moment. And that's where we had come to last week. We see this moment in Esther Chapter 5, verse 2, where it says, when, when he, the king, saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her. 
and he held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of his scepter. So we have the moment where Esther isn't immediately killed. She's not dead. But we don't know much more than that, other than the king has decided not to kill the queen in this moment. And so in the, in the next verse, we get to see the king's response to the queen, where it says, then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. The king sees the queen. And if you, if you were with us last week, we talked about how up until this moment, the king and queen hadn't actually seen each other interacted, spoken for over a month. And so even entering into the king's presence, the queen was unsure of how she'd be received, so much so that she called all of the Jewish people in the, in the city of Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire, she told, she told Mordecai, get them all together and fast and pray for me for three days. Because we talked about how we knew that on, like, there, there was going to need to be miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle if this plan was going to succeed. And so what we have here is we have the first miracle. She's not dead. And, and the king is actually open to receiving her. And so the king says to her, Esther, my queen, it's good to see you. What do you want? I will give you whatever you want, even up to half my kingdom. It's yours. There's favor on Esther. And so how does Esther respond? If it pleases the king, replies Esther, let the king together with Haman... Come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Now let's stop here for a moment. Because this isn't this isn't on script. This isn't the story. This isn't the thing she's supposed to be asking for. This isn't her big question. That wasn't supposed to be like, you know what we'll do? We'll throw the king a banquet. But this is what Esther asks. Why a banquet? Why not just tell him right then and there what's going on? Why not, you know, you've got one shot. You don't know if the king will be in this good of a mood again. And so why not take your shot while you've got, why not just spill your guts right then and there? Why not just throw it all out and see what happens? Well, we talked about how, how the king and the queen hadn't seen each other for, for over a month. And, and it seems like maybe the king does have some favor on Esther. But there's an old expression that says, you know, the fastest way to a man's heart is through his stomach. Well, what we've learned about King Xerxes is the fastest way to this man's heart is to throw him a party in honor of him. Remember, that's how the story began. Esther chapter 1 begins with King Xerxes throwing himself a party, honoring himself for 187 straight days. This is a man who likes to be honored. And so Esther, knowing I know my husband, and I know that if I want to get on his good side, what I need to do is I need to throw him a party. I need to honor him. She has to make sure that she's done what she can do to get the king back on her side. She needs to serve the king. She needs to make him laugh. She needs to remind the king of all the reasons why the king of anyone chose Esther. And if she can do that, maybe, just maybe, the king will hear her request. But the other part of this that's, that's at least a little confusing is, why invite Haman? Like, why invite the jerk? Why invite the, the worst person possible to this? Why invite the guy who's causing all of this? If it wasn't for Haman, Esther wouldn't be afraid for her life right now. Why invite Haman? 
I mean, he's, he's the cause of all. He could undo everything she asks in this moment. Why invite the agitator? Why invite the problem? And the truth is, we don't really know. Maybe Esther wanted to force Haman to not be able to object because she's there. And so maybe she spills her guts to the king and the king is like, yeah, you know, that really makes sense. Let me go talk to my advisor, Haman. And then Haman says, no, 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 no. You don't want to do that and here's why. So maybe she's trying to control the situation a little bit, keep it on, on the best. Some commentators think that maybe, maybe she was trying to make the king jealous by inviting someone else. And that the king would be more inclined to, to pay attention to her and to give her what she wanted if, if there was another person there, another man there, because the king would say, no, this is my wife and I am going to care for her. You don't, you don't get to do that. But what we don't, we don't really know full well why. But the important thing is that they both say Yes. And so later, when they're at this banquet, this party thrown by Esther, the king asks the same question. As they were drinking wine, as we've seen Xerxes is one to do, we've come back to that time and again throughout this book, the king again asked Esther, now, what is your petition? It will be given to you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. He is so open to her. We are seeing the miracles that the people had prayed for come to pass again and again and again. That somehow this king who had shown no favor on the queen, hadn't even called for her for a month, now is just continually coming back to this place of anything you want, my queen, you can have it. Surely now is the time. The king has reiterated this call. Whatever you want, whatever you want, you can have it, anything. Surely it's now that we should ask. But no, Esther doesn't present her request again. But instead she invites the king and Haman to come back tomorrow. For, for another party, let's, let's do this again. And, and if you come back tomorrow, then I promise, I'll tell you what my request is. But why don't we just do this again tomorrow? And Haman and the king, they agree. So Esther probably leaves this banquet hopeful. I mean, she's not dead, so she's got that going for her. Like, the, the first most immediate concern is that she was going to be killed. She's not. The second concern is, the king hasn't even spoken to me in a month. Will he even care that I'm there? Well, the, the king seems to be pretty favorable to her. Things are going okay. She, she's not dead. The king sees, this is going all right. The king probably leaves intrigued. You know, a little mystery inside of a relationship, not always a bad thing. And, and the king, what, I wonder, what, what is she up to? The queen's got the king's attention. What, what's going on? I wonder what she's doing. I wonder what she's thinking. But we do know how Haman leaves the banquet. He's on top of the world. And he pulls a little mini Xerxes. Where we talked about how Xerxes threw a 187-day party celebrating himself. Well, well, Haman gets all of his friends and family together, brings them all together after this party, and he wants to have a little mini party celebrating himself. And so he brings them all together and he talks about how, how he's rich. I am so rich. And he talks about how he's got all of these sons that will carry on his legacy and how he's honored by the king. And he lets them know he's just returning from a private party with the queen and the king. And he's essentially saying to his family, you know, isn't it so great that you're related to me? Isn't it so cool that of all the family you could have, it's me? And he says to his friends, God must really love you because he brought me into your life. 
You are so, you get to know me. How lucky are you? I envy, I wish I could be my own friend. Look at how great this is. You are so lucky. But then Haman goes on to lament and just, you know, there's just one problem. There's just, there's just one thing in life that's keeping me from, from fully enjoying life. And you and I, can, we can relate to this kind of experience where, where everything is good, except there's just like one thing, right? Like, like that one little thing that maybe even nobody else cares about, but you you notice, and you know, maybe you've made a, a big Christmas dinner for your family, or or so, and, and everybody, and every, oh, this is so great, this is so good, this, is, you did such a great job, and you're like, yeah, but the gravy was a little thin, and nobody cares, but because you're the one who's seeing it, you're like, but this could have been better, this could be better, and and Haman has this moment in his life where he's looking, man, I have got it made, I am incredible, I just came from a private dinner with the king and queen and me, isn't that amazing, there's just one problem, and he goes and he tells his friends and his family, the only problem I have left in life is that Mordecai fella, my life would be perfect if he was dead. If he, if, if he just wasn't alive anymore, there I could look around, and I couldn't find a single thing to complain about. Man, if only he was dead. And his wife speaks up. His wife, her, her name is uh, Zeresh, and she says, have a pole set up reaching to the height of 50 cubits. Now, 50 cubits is about 75 feet tall, or if you're under 30, 25 meters, um, depending on which, which unit of measure you're more, you're more comfortable with. But what you need to know, it's a big, tall pole. And his wife says that you should get this pole and you should set up this big, tall pole. And then she goes on and says, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. What a match these two are. My goodness, you wonder how two people could ever find each other like this. You know, there's the expression, a match made in heaven. Well, this ain't that. This is a match maybe made somewhere Else, this idea that, that you could go and you could get the, the, this pole and put it up and then just stick the guy on it and he'll be dead. And then we continue to see this insanity when she says, then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. These are monsters. These, this is crazy. Who, who are these people? And then we get the conclusion when it says, this suggestion delighted Haman. And that night he has the pole set up. This is, these are crazy people. But we cut from that scene where Haman's having this party to, to back to the palace. And it seems like the king is, is, he's having trouble sleeping. He's awake at night and he, and he can't sleep. And, and we know that, that, that Xerxes, like his favorite character is himself. And there's nothing more that he wants to hear about than himself. So, so what does the king do when he can't sleep? Well, he wants a bedtime story. But he wants a bedtime story about himself. And so he asks one of his servants to go and, and get the annals of the king, the chronicles of the life of the king. Go and get my life story and read it to me. Because that's what I want to hear. Is I want to hear stories of how awesome I am. But as the book is being opened and, and being read, they come to the point that we talked about a few weeks ago where the king is saved from a planned assassination by an official named Mordecai. Mordecai hears a rumor that there's these two people, these two other officials, and they're plotting to kill the king. And so he goes and he tells Esther. And Esther is very careful to say, my cousin Mordecai heard this. And so the king goes and he sends people to investigate and finds out it's true. That they were planned to. And so Mordecai has saved the life of the king. 
But we see in the story that nothing really happens and life just moves on. And in fact, the king asks his officials, whatever happened to that guy? That guy who said, did we ever do anything for him? Like, did we, like, give him a house? Like, what do we do? Do we do anything to honor him for saving my life? And, and the official says, no, not really. You just kind of said thanks and moved on. But as the sun is starting to rise and the king and the official, they're, they're talking about Mordecai and what happened. They, they can hear something going on outside of the king's bedroom. It sounds like there's people out there. And, and so what happens is, is the, the king hears this and he sends one of his officials to go check who's there. And Haman's there. And he's so excited to get going on his plan to impale Mordecai on this giant pole that he got up nice and early, came to the palace, and just was pacing outside of the king's bedroom, just waiting for the king to wake up. Just Once he gets up, I'm so excited, I'm so ready to get going with this. As soon as the king gets up, I'm going to say, hey king, I've got a great idea. I want to be the first person he talks to when he gets up in the morning. But while he's waiting outside, the king and his official, they're talking about Mordecai and what to do. And when the official comes and says, actually, it's, it's Haman. That's outside. It's Haman. He's he's waiting for you. And the king, because Haman's his number two, says, well, tell Haman to come in. I want to ask him him something. And so the king calls Haman in. But before Haman can begin to lay out his plan, the king asks him a question. Verse 6 of Esther 6 says, When Haman entered, the king asked him, What should be done for the man the king delights to honor? The king says to Haman, what what should we do for somebody who the king wants to treat special? And Haman, in this moment, he knows what's going on. And and he feels like, oh, this is a nice moment. The king is going to do something for me. And in fact, we know that because the verse says that. It says, now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? And so Haman feels good about it. What would someone the king wants to honor like? Well, let me think. Let me see if I can come up with something. And then he says this. So he answered the king. For whoever the man the king delights, whoever this might be, here's something he might like. For the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe that the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Let, or then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Then let the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. The thing I love about this is the specifics. Because you can tell Mordecai has just been waiting to answer this question. You, you, you know these moments when, when you ask someone a question and they answer it in such a specific way you can tell they've been thinking about it. That, you know, when you say to somebody, what would you like for Christmas? And like... It's product number da-da-da-da-da on Amazon. Like, they know exactly the one that, that it's not like, oh, you know, it's like, no, I know exactly what I want. And for this moment, Mordecai has been thinking about if the king ever wants to honor me for all that I am, what, what do I want? And he's been thinking about this. And so he lays out this very specific plan for what the king should do for just someone who might he might want to honor but Haman has no clue what he's done because clearly the king he likes the sound of this honor and he feels like it's just about right for what he was thinking because in verse 10 the king says go at once Haman Right on, this is happening today. This is going to be an awesome day. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for. And Haman is just waiting to hear his name fall off the king's lips. 
for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate, do not neglect a single thing you have recommended. Mordecai, the guy that Haman was there to ask to be executed on top of a ridiculously tall pole. The king says, that thing you had planned for yourself, that you had put so much thought and care and detail into, yeah, do that for him. And be sure to not leave a moment out of it. Make it exactly the way you said. I imagine you'd have to pick Mordecai's jaw up off the floor. Of all of the outcomes he could have saw coming, this was not one of them. He was very sure he was having one conversation with the king. And it turned out he was having a very different conversation with the king. Now, I'm sure Haman is beyond angry at this point. He's got to be furious inside. He can't show it because the king has given his order. And the order of the king cannot be changed. We've talked about this. And so he has to go and do this even though inside he's probably screaming inside. Remember, he was there to get permission to kill Mordecai. Now he's got to throw him a parade through the city streets. And I'd like to imagine what this time was like between the two men. I mean, they both are aware of the way that they feel, feel about each other. Haman's the one who's made the decree that all of the Jewish people are going to die. And now he's got the reason for that decree sitting on a horse behind him. I wonder if they talk to each other. I wonder if they, how are you doing? Are your feet okay? This is a long walk for you. I mean, for me, it's not so bad. I'm riding on a horse. But are your feet getting tired? Like, do you, do you need a break? I wonder if when Mordecai got down off the horse, if he said thank you. And I wonder if when he said thank you, if Haman said you're welcome. I imagine this had to have been just about the most awkward parade in the history of awkward parades. But it's about to get even more awkward. Because the parade is over. But now Haman's got one more thing on his calendar for the day. He's got to go back and have a banquet, back and have a party with the king who's just put him through all of this. And the queen, Esther. So he leaves, he goes home, rests, throws on his, his party clothes, heads off for the banquet. And at the banquet, we see Esther, or the, the king asks Esther for a third time. Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. The king's favor continues to rest on Esther. And, and we see these miracles that, that shouldn't be there. They just continue to show up again and again and again. And this time the queen answers. This time the queen says, verse 3, then, the queen, then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition and spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we have merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, but, but no such stress would justify disturbing the king. So you have this moment. It's a table for three. The king and queen are sitting opposite each other, and Haman's off to the side because he's at the third wheel, and that's where third wheels go. Esther finally begins to speak, and she begins, she you know, pulls up all of the, the courage, all of the strength, all of the bravery. Her heart's probably pounding a thousand beats a minute inside of her chest. She can't even hear from the blood pumping through her, and she's trying to be 
brave and strong and not let her voice waver or show any fear. And she begins to say, King, my request is that I can have my life back. See, see, I have been destined to be killed. And you can see the king leaning in and trying to understand and growing confused and angry. And and what what are you talking? Who on earth would have the guts to threaten the life of the queen? No, what are you, what is happening? And you can see Haman sitting off to the side, watching them talk. His mind is piecing together what's happening. And he's beginning to shrink in his seat. Because he knows what's, he, he knows what's, being, what's being revealed right now. And he knows this is not going to go well for him. And so he's probably pretending to cough, thinking, well, I need to go get a drink of water. I'll be right back. Try, I got to go to the bathroom. I, I, can I get out of here somehow, some way? Is there anything I can do to get out of here? And the king, as he's hearing Esther tell of what's going to take place, that her and her people are going to die, the king hasn't put two and two together that this is Haman's decree because the king, in in anger, says to, to, to Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing. Where is this idiot that thinks he can threaten the life of the queen? I'm going to make an example. I'm going to show him what real power looks like. Where is this guy? Esther says, an an adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman, this guy, Sitting at dinner with us. I, you know, we, we serve a God who scripture will tell us nothing is impossible for. And so I'd like to take that literally and just really understand that in this moment, it wasn't beyond God to provide this conversation with sound effects. And at the moment when Esther says, an adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman, that somehow, somewhere, there was a sound and it went dun, dun, dun. That there's this moment where she reveals that this guy sitting at the, t- it's him. He has done this. And we see that the king gets up. He's enraged. He's flying off the handle. Maybe he knocks the table over. What a, he gets up and he storms out of the room. He's got to go collect his thoughts. He's got to go put himself together. He doesn't know what he's going to do. He just knows he is absolutely furious and he's going to do something. So he storms out of the room. The, his most trusted advisor, his number two, has tried to kill his wife. What is he going to, he is fuming, furious, so angry. And Haman, he realizes, I'm seconds away from death here. Like all the king has to do is come back in the room and go kill him and I'm dead. So he tries to plead for his life and he, he rushes over to the queen and the queen's sitting on a couch and he jumps onto the couch where the queen is sitting and it's just at that moment the king comes back into the room and sees his, his advisor crawling on the couch over to his wife. It looks a little compromising. It looks like in an effort to save himself, Haman's maybe putting the moves on the queen. And the king is furious. He loses his mind. He instructs his guard, come and just get Haman out of my sight. I can't even think right now. Get him out of here. And as he begins to, what am I to, what am I going to do with Haman? Turns out there's this guy named Harbona who's been standing there watching this all Take place. And in verse 9, it says this. Then Harbona, one of, the, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. Hey, king, Haman put up this big, tall pole right next to his house. And he says he had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. I'm not saying, I'm, I'm just saying. I'm not telling you what to do. And in case you were wondering, this happened. And the king very quickly puts two and two together. The king said, impale him on it. Mordecai's pole will not be left standing there. Except it won't be Mordecai on it. 
The king kills Haman on the pole that was meant for Mordecai. Verse 10. So they impaled Haman on the pole. He set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. So it seems like we've come finally to a place in this book where some justice has been served, where something good has happened. Except that we still have all of the lives of the Jewish people still hanging in the balance. Mordecai is safe, but that's, that's for next week. But so what can we take away from the story we've walked through this morning? We've walked through this, this long and winding story full of banquets and dinners and bedtime stories and crazy couples. and all. What can we take away from what we've talked about this morning? There's two, there's two truths I want to leave you with this morning that hopefully being an encouragement for you. First, when it feels like no one sees you, God sees you. When it feels like no one sees you, God sees you. See, a few weeks ago, when we were talking about Esther chapter 2, we talked about the story where Mordecai saves the king's life, and we talked about that this morning. And how, seemingly, the only accolade that was given to him was that his name had been written down in some book. The book of the events of the king's life. Who's ever going to read that other than, like, the people whose job it is to read that. And in fact, the way that the book of Esther is written, we read that, that Mordecai saves the king's life. His name is written in the book. And then the next verse is the king honoring Haman. That Mordecai, nothing, nothing comes to Mordecai. No good deed goes rewarded, I guess. He saves the king's life. He gets his name written in a book. And that's it. How easy could it have been for Mordecai to become bitter? How easy could it have been for him to be like, I saved the king's life and I didn't even get a lousy t-shirt. Like, I got nothing. Nothing, nothing to show for it. In fact, since that moment, the only thing that's happened is like, all of my people are going to die and now this crazy man has a pole in his front yard and it's got my name on it. It would have been really easy for Mordecai to be angry and bitter. But there's this verse in Hebrews, chapter 6, verse 10. And it says this. But God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you've helped his people and continue to help them. It says that God's, God's not unjust. He, he sees the things that you've done. And it's an important thing that we see this here because there, there's, a, there's a transition that takes place between what we're doing and what God sees. See, what it says that we're doing is that we're serving one another. That, that we're showing care for one another. We're, that we're helping each other. We're serving. But what does it say that God sees when we serve? It says that he sees our love for him. That he doesn't just look and see us serving and go, that's really neat that they serve that way. Isn't it really great that she serves like that? He doesn't just see our service. But when he sees us serve, what he sees is our love for him. That when we serve, God says, Look at how she loves me. Look at how he loves me. And it says that God won't forget it. That maybe as you've served, maybe as, as you've done things for other people, maybe as you've given of yourself, and you look back and you go, does anybody care? Did anybody? I did all of that, and I didn't even get a thank you. I did all of that, and it just seems like it came, and it went, and nobody even cared. What we read here is that it says that God sees it, and God's not going to forget it. 
See, God saw what Mordecai did. And he didn't forget. And when the king needed a bedtime story, friends, I assure you, it was no mere coincidence that the king's bedtime story reader turned to that page on that night and told that story. The same night that that pole was put up for Mordecai's death, the king was hearing what Mordecai did. God didn't forget what Mordecai had done, even if the king did. And friends, God sees you. God sees the work that you've done. God sees the good that you've done. God sees the places you've served. God sees the places you've helped. God sees the sacrifice you've made for others. God sees the love you've extended to other people. God sees you and he sees what you've done even if it feels like no one else saw it, even if it feels like others saw it and they didn't care. God sees it. And God will not Forget it. And when the time comes, God will bless you for it. The second truth that we can take away this morning is this. When you wait on the Lord, you will be blessed beyond the request. See, what we see in this story is, well, I guess what we don't see is Esther jumping in with both feet. What we don't see is Esther taking the first opportunity that she, the king said, I can have whatever I want. Here's what I want. But for some reason, she doesn't say anything. And even the next time she's given the opportunity, she doesn't say anything. Now, some people will speculate and say, well, maybe she was scared. Maybe Maybe, maybe she was just trying to work up the courage. Maybe she just wasn't quite confident. But, but I don't think that's what it is. Friends, I think it's the leading of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit was giving Esther wisdom. That that moment in the throne room, it wasn't the right time yet. Because Haman was still plotting and scheming. That second time, that the first banquet, it wasn't the right moment. But that third time at the second banquet, that was the right moment. And the Holy Spirit gave Esther the words to speak each time that she needed to speak. The king said she could have anything but she needed to wait on the Lord. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18 tells us, yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. See, our God is in the business of turning darkness into light, of turning hopelessness into hope, of turning ashes into beauty, of turning mourning into joy, of turning despair into praise, and of turning the plans and the purposes of the enemy to our glory. When we wait on the Lord, when we trust in the Lord, when we believe in God and his plan for our lives, we can see in our lives what we're about to see for the Jews in the Persian Empire. See, next week, what we're going to see is that it's not just God's plan for the Jews to just not be killed. It's not their plan to just 
survive this. But God's plan for his people in Persia is not just for them to survive, but it's for them to thrive. And God's plan for his people is the same today. See, Jesus will say that I didn't just come to somehow make it so that you can just barely scrape through life, that you can just just get to the end and somehow be like, oh, just made it. By the skin of my teeth, oh, I'm here. Jesus will say, I didn't just come so that you could just have life, but I came that you could have life and have an abundant life. Let's pray together. Father God, we recognize that through the first four weeks of this sermon series, we've had to look really hard to find you. We've had to listen hard to hear the shouts in the silence. We, we've had to look really hard to see you in places where we just couldn't see you. And God, I thank you that as we read through our text today, we're able to see your hand at work. And so God, I pray for each one here, each couple here, each family here, each person here. God, wherever they're at in their life as, a story, as paralleled to Esther, God, if they're in the seasons where it's hard for them to look and find you, that the events and the stories that are being told, they look and they say, I can't see God in any of this. Or God, if they're trying to find you, maybe they're starting to see hints. Maybe they're starting to see glimpses. God, I thank you that if they are in the beginnings of this story, God, I thank you that the time and the place is coming where they will start to see you. And God, I thank you that as we see you begin to show up in a powerful way in this story, that we see you using the king of the most powerful empire in the world to accomplish your purposes. God, I thank you that in our story, you can use whatever you need in order to show us that you are our God. And God, I pray for each one here that is maybe still sitting in the silence listening for the shouts. God, may their ears be made to hear. Would they hear your voice calling to them in the silence? May they see your light beginning to, dine, or beginning to shine in the darkness. God, may they see your presence in their lives. God, we know all throughout the story of Esther, your presence never left. And God, I thank you that in our lives, your story, our story, your presence never leaves us. And God, I thank you that as we're going to come to an end of this sermon series, and God, we're going to see that you have called the Jewish people to not just survive, but for them to thrive. God, I thank you that that is true for each one here. God, that you have a plan and a purpose. That whatever we can think of, God, your word will tell us that you can do more than we can ask or imagine. And God, I pray that for each one of us gathered here today, God, that we serve that same God. And God, I pray that you would fill us with hope, fill us with the confidence, fill us with the assurance that you long to be gracious to us that you will rise up to show us compassion, that, that you are a God of justice and we will be blessed as we wait and we trust in you because you see us and you will not forget us. You are not unjust. God, I pray that we would have the confidence and the assurance that you will carry us through. Jesus, we love you. We're so grateful for your work in our lives. Thank you for who you are and what you've done for us. 
In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Smoke clouds all around. Couldn't see your Thanks again for being a part of this message from Hillside Church. We pray that God was able to speak to you through what was shared. We're so grateful to be able to share God's word with our church community and family. And that includes you. And we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Hillside Airdrie. You can contact us through email at info at hillsideairdrie.ca. Or you can go to hillsideairdrie.ca and click on contact us from the main menu. Or you can find our pastoral team contact by clicking on our pastors from the Our Church drop-down menu. Our vision for everyone that shares in Hillside Church is that they would know God, know His hope, know His purpose, and know His power in their lives. And we pray this message ministered to you. At Hillside Church, we're a family not by blood, but a family that's been bought by blood. As family we go. You're fine.